0: Kia ora, I'm Emile Donovan and today on The Detail, the frequency and the cost of natural disasters is rising due, among other factors, to population growth and human-caused climate change.
1: Well, as you've said, a state of emergency has been declared in
0: Nelson. The west coast of the South Island is under a red weather warning tonight with half a metre of rain predicted to fall in some parts. The country is burning. It's been labelled the worst fire season ever recorded. An apocalypse, a nightmare, and like looking into the gates of hell. And obviously it's a bad thing when anyone's property or livelihood is damaged for reasons beyond their control. But we can take the sting out through the age-old policy of insurance. Insurance companies are expecting a large number of claims from flood-torn areas in the Nelson-Tasman region. Clearly we're looking at thousands from around the country and likely thousands from the Nelson area as well. But there's a lot of mystery around the insurance industry how they work out their premiums, for example, how people in Auckland subsidise earthquake insurance, and who might end up paying the hundreds of billions of dollars it would cost to move people who live in flood-prone houses away from lakes and coastlines. So today on the podcast, we're talking to someone who knows a bit about this, an actuary. Actuaries are very, very clever. Yes. (laughs) Yes. This is Emma Vitz. She's an actuary specialising in natural perils and climate-based risk, working in New Zealand for Finity Consulting. I I feel like this is an important point. Like, it's really, really hard to become an actuary.
1: It's hard and it takes a long time, especially in New Zealand. How long does it take? We sit professional body exams. There are three stages to that. It depends a little bit on if you do actuarial science at university. You sort of get to skip a few of those. That wasn't an option until recently in New Zealand, so I started from the bottom. (laughs) So I've been um, working as an actuary for five years. So you can think about the work that an actuary does in three sort of broad categories. So there's pricing, which is maybe what people are most aware of, because they obviously pay a premium when they buy insurance. So that's looking at how much should an insurer be charging for a particular risk. Uh Then we've got the reserving side of things, which is looking at how much money an insurer should be holding on to for claims. Mm -hmm. So those could be claims that have happened, but they don't know about them yet. Those could be claims that haven't happened yet. And then there's capital, which is looking at what should an insurer invest in.
0: Because insurance companies, I mean, they're big financial institutions, right? Like, mm-hmm. that's how we should think of them. They're not, oh, it's, yeah. it's not a place that insures $100 million worth of buildings and therefore it has $100 million in the bank. And if this building goes down, then we take out the value of your building and we give it to you and then it's all fine like that. It, it does not work like that no. at all.
1: No. They will have investments that are obviously backing their, their liabilities, which are the claims that they need to pay out. Yeah, and not everyone not everyone realises that, I think. It's, yeah. it's not like a savings account.
0: Okay, so the work that you do in general insurance mm-hmm. actuary work, am I right in saying it largely pertains to climate change?
1: Um, A big part of it does, yeah.
0: Climate change has been something that we have known as happening for many, many decades. Mm-hmm. I presume that insurance is an area that has always been very much alive to the risks posed by this because it's a... An industry that's based around knowing what is happening and what could happen into the future. I'm like, what is the?
1: Yeah, I think that's I think that's accurate. Obviously, you've still got you know discussions or um, disagreements about how exactly things are going to unfold. But mm. you know, the the question of you know is climate change a thing and and is it going to have a significant impact um, and are we seeing the beginnings of that already? I think that pretty much everyone agrees that yes, that's the case. Um, I will say that. For something like a home insurance policy, that's a policy for one year. Mm-hmm. So the, the the risk that they're pricing for is the risk of the next year. Mm-hmm. So they're likely quite aware of climate change and they're probably thinking about it, but they're not necessarily reflecting that in your premium today.
0: Exactly, yeah. Yeah. They're not sort of sages sitting up above the clouds looking 100 years into the future. And
1: they're also not going to charge you for, like, if, if your house is uninsurable in 50 years' time, but it's fine right now. Then why wouldn't they sell you an insurance policy?
0: I suppose it must be a huge topic of interest and conversation in the wider sort of insurance mm-hmm. indes- in the wider insurance space as well as cl- the effect that climate change is going to have on the insurance industry.
1: Last year, set a new record in New Zealand for climate-related insurance payments at 324 million. From May's flooding in mid-Canterbury to a tornado in Auckland in June, flooding in July and August on the west coast and upper South Island,
0: and September's windstorm...
1: In- so obviously general insurers are very interested in it in terms of you know natural disasters and, and that kind of thing. You've also got what we would describe as transition risks. So if we come back to that idea that insurers invest money as we transition towards an economy that's less reliant on fossil fuels and you know a greener economy as part of the you know, I guess, reacting to climate change, Um, the investment side of of insurance has to think about that as well.
0: There's maybe an example of maybe a dilemma that that might come up in that area. Say the best investment that an insurer with lots of capital has is in, I don't know, like a fossil fuels company or or something along those sorts of lines, and that fossil fuels company is contributing to climate change, but then the run-on effect of climate change might, you know, there's like a, a potential sort of not necessarily a conflict, but kind of a conflict in that situation.
1: Yeah, to some extent. And and there's also the fact that if we decide as a society that we're not going to be um, using those, those energy sources as much, the value of those companies, it goes down, right? The value becomes less. And so if you're an insurance company that's holding a lot of assets concentrated in those industries, then that becomes a problem.
0: OK, so here in New Zealand we've just had, over the past couple of weeks this terrible rainfall that's happened on the west coast and then Nelson at the top of the South Island. The west coast of the South Island is under a red weather warning tonight with half a metre of rain predicted to fall in some parts. The Mai tai River has burst its banks again as heavy rain lashes Nelson for a third day. Residential streets have been scoured out and destroyed by floodwaters and slips... The part of my mind that wants to oversimplify things says, well, you know, when it comes to assessing the risks of climate change from the perspective of an insurer, surely the equation is pretty simple, right? It's like, well, the worse that global warming gets, the more that we're going to get events like this, the more money that we're going to be paying out because property gets destroyed, therefore the more we have to raise premiums to pay for the claims that are sort of coming through. Mm -hmm. Is that a wildly oversimplified view of of how things kind of work?
1: I think it's an accurate simplification of that particular part of it. So we would call that physical risk. So that's risk to buildings or cars or whatever, some kind of physical Um, thing that is being damaged. And I think you're right is, you know, obviously insurers need to collect enough money to cover their costs. As I mentioned before, there's also the transition risks, which are less obvious. And that's more about, you know, what are, for example, what are they investing in? And then there's also other things to think about in terms of the claims process. And, you know, some insurers are looking into, for example, decarbonising the claims process. So what are they repairing cars with? What are they repairing buildings with when claims are made, and and can they kind of move to a solution there that's a little bit less negative? I mm, guess, mm, yeah. Mm. So there's there's lots of different things. I do think you're right that that's probably a big chunk of it, and that's what people are most aware of. I think.
0: Mm. Well, yeah, because I was I was wondering about this, like the headline threats by climate change that people probably think of when they hear about this are things like, you know, flooding. Water levels are rising across the district. In just a few hours, these paddocks became rivers. Drought. A large part of China has been enduring a record-breaking heatwave over the past two months. That is in addition to record low rainfall. Wildfires, particularly in places like Australia. 33 lives lost, 3,000
1: homes destroyed, 1 billion animals killed...
0: An I mean, are there other things that people don't think about that often or that might seem a bit sort of counterintuitive in the climate change insurance actuarial space that are interesting from your point of view?
1: So I think the secondary effects potentially people don't think about. So if we sort of step outside of insurance, there's lots of things around agriculture and Supply chains being disrupted. Wildfires in the American West, flooding in Europe, and drought in South America are all disrupting supplies of everything from lumber to chocolate, even to sushi rice. So there's lots of things that sort of spread, I guess, and become more of a systemic issue.
0: But even when we get into the idea, into the areas of uh, su- supply chains and goods being processed and things like that, there is still an like, is th- is there not still an insurance component yep. to that? Yeah, like absolutely. Like insurance has fingers in everything, doesn't it? Yep.
1: I mean, we pretty much, if you think about insurance as risk management, you know, wherever you are, you, you kind of want to avoid the downside, basically. Yeah. So whether you're talking about, yeah, like you said, supply chains or, you know, energy production or whatever it is, there's insurance involved. Mm. And and I will also say that the skills that somebody who works in the field that I do has, they can then be used in other fields because, you know, they are generally useful, useful. I guess. Useful, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So we've worked for banks, we've worked for supermarkets, we've done... You know, lots of different things.
0: Sea level rise. We know it's already happening, and for decades, the world has been trying to stop it by curbing climate change. But tonight, we can reveal that in New Zealand, it's going to happen much, much sooner than anyone thought. 30 centimetres is coming in only 10 or 20 years. By 2060, for some, it's approaching a metre, and that will cause dramatic inundation, untold damage, and ultimately force people to abandon their homes and businesses and retreat from the coast. I have a statistic here. Oh, managed retreat, looking at the costs of managed retreat, and this is from the Environment Ministry saying, um, well, this is the idea, managed retreat, for listeners who aren't familiar with that sort of phrase, that um, there are going to be essentially there are going to be properties that are going to be uninsurable in the short-term future, right? And managed retreat is the idea that you move them away from the areas that, yeah. And the Environment Ministry projecting that there are 500,000 buildings, uh, which it says, quote, are near rivers in the coastline um, with a total value of around $145 billion. (laughs) These numbers are so big that it seems it's hard for me to sort of process. Like, can you outline what the... What the, what the tensions are, I suppose, you know, like you need to get people away from these areas, right? You need to get them away from these properties because they're not going to be valuable in the long term. And they're term, also not right? safe. Then they're not safe. Well, <laughs> they're not safe <laughs> I think they're that's not the, and not valuable. Yeah, Yes, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, so I think that's a really... I think managed retreat is a really difficult... I think it's something we need to consider, but I think it's very difficult to do in practice. And if you look at examples of where people have tried to do it, it's... Um, you've usually got big... Tensions between the people who own the properties and the government.
0: And we've already had our own experience of managed retreat in the tiny coastal town of Matata. In 2005, an intense storm above the hills of Matata destroyed 27 homes and damaged much of the township. Fakatania District Council has been buying residents' properties after deciding the area is just too risky for occupation.
1: It's taken 14 years? Like, why has it taken so long? Some of the property owners here, they felt betrayed by the council.
0: They don't realise that there's 20 families here that have been uprooted,
1: moved off. You know, if you're going to buy these people out you know, who pays for that and how much should they be paid. And at that point, by the time you get to talking about managed retreat, commercial insurers have usually left that area. Yeah. It is really a, a, a conflict between the people who own the property and the government.
0: What, because the only one who could viably sort of step in and say, OK, we'll pay for this is is what is the government?
1: At that point in time... That's that's usually how it is. So I don't know if you've read the the, the national adaptation plan that was recently released.
0: Sea walls, raised homes, managed retreat. These are all some of the options that the government has put forward for those most likely to lose their homes due to climate change. The 200-page National Adaption Plan pulls together a to-do list of about 120 actions, but the big questions of who pays
1: and how are still a long way from being answered. So they discuss this in quite a bit of detail, and one of the things that they sort of float is the idea of, you know, can insurers be part of the, the process of managed retreat? And it's a I guess it's a nice idea, but in in practice... It doesn't work because by the time you're having these conversations, those insurers are no longer insuring those properties or yeah. they're charging you know, outrageous premiums for them. So, yeah, it's really a conversation between um, property owners and the government at that point.
0: I was talking to my boss earlier about this interview and she said, can you ask Emma this, please? My house is never going to flood. Yep. I live in Auckland. It's not an earthquake zone. I'm mm-hmm. never going to get ruined by an earthquake. Why do I have to pay lots of money to insurance companies when the only thing really that might hurt my house is a volcanic eruption? Is it built into the model of insurance companies that, you know, everybody takes on a certain amount of risk and people who are more, you know, like, she's probably not going to get ruined by an earthquake. And yet, you know, if people who only lived in earthquake-prone areas paid earthquake.
1: I could do a whole whole podcast just on this question. Yeah.
0: <laughs> We'll be, l- please get okay that. so I
1: think there's two things there there's there's the flood and there's the earthquake and because earthquake is largely dealt with by EQC uh-huh. I'm going to deal with them separately sure. so the flood what that question is getting at is what we call risk-based pricing which is when you are basically receiving a price that is very specific to your individual risk as opposed to you know a price that has been determined for you know Auckland as a whole or your particular postcode or, or whatever it might be. And the insurance industry as a whole is moving towards risk-based pricing. And um, when we look at Australia, it's already doing that to a uh, pretty sophisticated degree. And what that means is that someone like your boss would then receive a premium that was a lot lower because, like she said, she's quite a low risk and, and we would be able to identify that you know this particular house is this high up and maybe the one that's like halfway down the road is much, much lower, yeah. and so we're going to give those two people very different premiums.
0: How would you do that?
1: Fundamentally, we would have like a statistical model that predicts the frequency and the severity of, of claims, so how often are you going to make a claim and how bad is it going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and we would use things like the elevation of the house or how far is the house from the coast.
0: And like where the data and um, you know, r- rainfall estimates and how often freak events or waves might happen that might, you know, is that all sort of factored into it as well?
1: Yeah, to some extent. So we would usually have something like, we would usually have like a, a, what we call a peril model, Mm -hmm. which is predicting, you know, at that very specific location, what's it going to be like. And then in terms of, if you're looking at bigger weather systems and also climate change, you would have a model that's sort of, maybe a global level or a national level or whatever, that Mm -hmm. kind of comes over that. And then obviously you would be looking at claims data, which would Give you information about different, you know, if you've got different places where claims are happening at a more frequent, or you would want to know about that as well.
0: There is a specific example that came up on Morning Report a couple of weeks ago. Um, it was talking about properties in Petoni. Imagine paying $100,000 a year just to insure your house. That is the reality facing some homeowners in the near future, according to a climate economist. Belinda Story from Climate Sigma says those are the sorts of costs an owner of a million-dollar home on the Potoni foreshore could be facing in just 20 years' time. How is something like that worked out?
1: So what that tells me is that if we think that a house is worth $500,000, then the insurance company expects that to be a total loss once every five years because um, wow, okay. that would yeah. equal $100,000. Even if you did have insurance and you could afford it, We know that there are a lot of, you know, when somebody loses their house, there are a lot of costs that aren't covered by insurance and there's obviously a lot of stress. We've spoken to a lot of
0: really anxious people today. They say if there's rain on their roof, they just don't sleep after what they've been through in the last year.
1: I think it's tempting to look at that situation and, and and sort of blame the insurer for charging that much money or yeah. cuz it's a in big this number hypothetical right yeah
0: it's exactly. situation the natural reaction yeah, of someone yeah. is like a greedy insurer yeah yeah
1: bit, uh... but i think the reality is that the insurer is the messenger in that situation they they're basically saying um you know this this house is extremely high risk
0: yeah so it's sort of premiums as a almost as a dis, high premiums almost is a disincentive
1: to some extent yeah that only really happens at the very extreme end yeah when you go from having a premium of 2,000 to 2200 mm. you know they might not love it but that's not going to make them change their behaviors in terms of where they live um, but yes at the extreme end you do you do need to see it that way so you mentioned EQC yeah
0: so why does someone in Auckland subsidize the amount of insurance that's some you know well
1: it, I mean the first the first thing is people don't realize that they do yeah. right effectively everyone in New Zealand pays the same amount into EQC, and then obviously, if you're living in an area like Wellington or um, the Hawkes Bay or Nelson, where the earthquake risk is higher, it makes sense that those people would be claiming more often, and for you know bigger claims. So the reality is that Auckland is cross subsidising the rest of the country. At this point in time, EQC covers the first $150,000 of damage to a building. Mm-hmm. And in October, that will be going up to three hundred thousand yeah, so to fund that the the amount of uh, money that everyone kind of chips into that fund is going up as well
0: but I guess that makes sense in the same way that like ACC makes sense right, and that you know older well, people are going to be claiming more than younger people
1: i guess there's it's sort of a a question for society like how much cross subsidization do we want to be implementing yeah. um, and I'm not saying that there shouldn't be any or that this isn't the right amount i'm actually not proposing that I know the right amount. I'm just saying this is how it is, mm-hmm. right? So I think we do need to ask ourselves that question and to sort of talk about that, we you know we have to kind of deal with the fact that this is how it is.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you think a similar scheme to EQC could be used to deal with all types of climate-related insurance claims? Like, I guess the idea being, you know, that like it, it's sort of a we're all in this together kind of model, right?
1: I think if... If the funding was to be similar if they were to use sort of an eqC system, one thing that I sort of question is, are people going to be as happy with the idea of cross subsidization when it's happening at a dwelling level so if you're you know if you're your boss who's sitting at the top of a hill and you're looking down on you know your neighbor down the road and they're um, right next to the ocean and they're being flooded, and you can sort of see that very clearly at such a um, individual level, are people willing to accept cross-subsidisation in that situation? And I think it might be different compared to, you know, in Auckland we sort of know that Wellington is more likely to have an earthquake. But we can't really pin that down to one person or one suburb. Or So I sort of, yeah, I think that's an interesting question as to whether we accept cross-subsidisation at such an individual level.
0: Yeah, because you're kind of like... Well, you're looking down on the guy whose house is getting flooded and you're like, Well, he bought that five years ago.
1: And so I think <laughs> what did
0: you think was gonna happen? Yeah.
1: Yeah, and I think that's a difficult sell. Yeah. Um, in the, in the way that earthquake is not, because we can't predict earthquake to the same granularity as we can with something like flood.
0: With your knowledge about risk and threat and mm-hmm. things like that, does that make you feel dispirited about the future of Humans.
1: I don't think I've ever. I don't think I've ever come out of the work I do feeling. I mean, I'm probably a pessimist. You know, like I'm an actuary, Like we're professional pessimists. But I don't think I've ever come out of a out of a work project being like, wow, I'm really down about the state of the world. Yeah. Um, and I don't know whether that's just because, like you said, I compartmentalise, or whether I just see it as, you know, we're sort of part of the process of managing it.
0: Sure. Yeah. I guess you can see that we, society, humanity, are trying to address it, trying to do something about it, and I guess that in and of itself gives you hope. Yeah, not and... to get and, too marvel on it. You know, like.
1: Yeah, and working on projects where that is sort of part of the part of the goal is to, um, you know, better understand these things so that we can better manage them, um, I think is potentially a reason why I don't feel pessimistic about that.
0: That's it for today. I'm Emile Donovan. The detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand on Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. Today's episode was engineered by Mark Chesterman and produced by Bonnie Harrison and Sarah Robson, and thanks to Emma Vitz. Matewa.